Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Nice to uh, be here with you. Uh, for those of you who uh, don't know me, my name is Graham. I'm one of the. I usually spend a lot of time explaining who I am. I'm a, one of the regional ministers for the Eastern Baptist Association, and uh, I talk a lot about that. But instead, here today, I'm going to say I'm with Tracy. So uh, I'm Tracy's husband. That will make more sense to you. So just going to see if this is working. That's working. That's perfect. Excellent. We're good to go. Excellent. We're going to spend some time looking at this Bible passage. I don't know about you, I feel like I've been going to church for a thousand years. Do you know, when you get that time where you think, well, I've always gone to church, and that's always what we've done. And as I think back over the Christmases uh, that I've had over the years, I don't remember many people speaking about what we've heard read. We might get a bit of the Mary in a nativity service, a carol service, uh, but I don't remember hearing people speaking about Zechariah. You know, we might be familiar with it. And interestingly... I was sharing this same um, sermon. It's quite handy when you're a regional minister and you can preach the same sermon in different places. It's quite a blessing. Um, And last week I was preaching it and someone said, do you know, I've never ever, and this was an elderly person, uh, was saying, I've never ever heard anyone preach on Zechariah before. So there we go. Interesting, isn't it? How we pick and choose and we do the familiar bits and the same bits. And I was thinking about this Bible passage and how I was going to introduce what I was saying. And I thought about this um, image here. It gives you a bit of insight into my, how my mind works. This is just a thought that occurred to me. Can anyone guess why? I'll be very impressed. No? Well, do you know when you're waiting for a bus? And you look at the timetable, and the timetable often bears no relation to reality, does it? You've got the, you're looking at this thing and think, when's it going to come? And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting, and then all of a sudden... You've waited a long time, and not one bus comes, but two. Or very occasionally, once, as in this picture, there was actually three. And it struck me that angels can be like buses. That you've got this, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament is approximately 400 years. 400 years. And at the end of the Old Testament, the prophets are speaking, and the, the Jewish nation is hearing from the Lord... And then you've got 400 years of more or less nothing. And then you get this angelic visitation. Oh, angelic visitation, that's very good. And then there's another one. And, and, and Joseph gets a dream where he meets an angel. And I just wanted to pause and ask the question, do you feel like you're waiting? Do you feel like you're waiting? Because the Jews in this period, they didn't have the Old Testament, so they weren't thinking, oh, the Old Testament has ended. That's not how they would have thought. They would have just thought, it's been a long time since we've heard God speak to us. And I wonder sometimes where we feel like we're in this period of waiting. We're in this strange period at the moment. At the moment, We've had this pandemic. We're in the pandemic. People keep talking about a vaccine, which is very exciting. Some of you may have received the vaccine. I don't know. Some people have had the vaccine. But in reality, we know it's going to be a few months before enough people have had the vaccine that's going to make a difference. So we're in this strange period of waiting, aren't we? Knowing the end is in sight, hopefully. But we're waiting. Sometimes in life we feel like we're waiting for God, waiting for him to move. Uh, some lots of the Psalms talk about how uh, the, the psalmist used to have this amazing experience of God, but, but now God feels far away. Is that where you are today? Do you feel like you're, oh, where's the bus coming? Uh, and it may be that there are two or three angels, God moments, around the corner. So a little quiz for you. Um, who lives here? <coughs> the Queen, apparently, when she's not somewhere else. Uh, who lives here? Prime Minister. 
There he is. That's where he lives. Who lives here? No, he doesn't. He's not real. But anyway, that's fine. I wonder if you were to go into this building. Who would you expect to meet? God. God. Zechariah goes into the temple, has an encounter with God, and he's astonished. Does that not strike you as being a bit odd? In the Jewish temple, there was the bit where everyone could go. I'm simplifying massively. It's a lot more complicated than this. There was a bit everyone could go. There was a bit where some people could go. And there was a bit that only the priest could go into. That was the God bit. And the reason the priest could only go there is that is where the presence of God was. Zechariah is in this bit where God inhabits in a powerful way. And he has this experience of God and he's really shocked. Why, why is that? Well, it's because he's waiting, isn't he? He's, he's, he's like, well, I don't, his life is miserable. We'll find out more about that in a minute. He's in this place of just misery, dejectedness. Why has it all gone wrong? It's been 400 years since we heard God say anything. God, where are you? Where, where are you in this stuff that's going on? The Romans have taken over our country. It's all gone wrong. And he's surprised to have this encounter with God. Is that where we are today? Thinking about Zechariah and um, Elizabeth. And they were incredible. The Bible describes them as uh, righteous. And um, it seems astonishing that you get this couple described as being righteous. And he was a priest and she was from a priestly family. These, these were the kind of people people would look at and think, oh, oh they're proper Jews, aren't they? Look at them, they're amazing. They were really pleasing to God, their lives. Then you've got this strange contradiction where Elizabeth talks about, she uses the word disgrace later on. She feels that her life is full of disgrace because she couldn't have children. Now I need to say that's her language and not God's. Uh, God doesn't say that anyone who can't have children is disgraced. But that's how she felt in her culture. And it seems strange that two people could so faithfully serve God and do everything that God would want them to. And yet they're living with this heartache. They're living with this pain. They're living with this sense of... God, why have you let us down? Why didn't you do what you wanted us to do? And I think this is very significant because there's a lie that exists in some churches. <clears throat> and the lie is, if you follow God faithfully, then you'll always be well, you'll always be rich, and everything will always be wonderful. And we can see here it's just simply not true. Now, God does bless us in all kinds of ways. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, God is mysterious, and there's no kind of formula between if we're good enough, then God will give us more good stuff. Because God's priority is not the comfort of Graham Ross. God's priority is to save the world. And for whatever reason in, in this story, Elizabeth couldn't have a child. And it's a terribly sad story. And, and I often think that they must have gone through so many painful years of, why God, why God? And I don't know if you've come across this before, the five stages of grief. And I find this incredibly, incredibly helpful, except I can't see it, and it's not in my notes, so that's going to be interesting. So um, we talk about this in terms of bereavement, that when you lose a loved one, you have this moment of denial, the kind of, I can't believe this has happened. Then there's anger that follows. And then there's often a period of bargaining where people will say to, to God, or if they're not Christians, they'll kind of voice it to something, where they're saying, oh, please bring them back and I will do this forever. And there's this sense of bargaining that goes on. And then there's uh, depression. Uh, and then finally, there's this place of acceptance. Now, acceptance doesn't mean it's okay. 
Accepting just means I've been through all this extreme emotion and I accept that I have now lost a loved one. And that is, that is how I will live my life forevermore. I'm in a place of acceptance, but the pain that is, is still there. So this is the five stages of grief. And uh, if you've ever uh, been bereaved, if you've lost a loved one, hopefully this will make you feel a bit better. And you think, oh, it's not just me then. Because people, when you share this with people in grief counselling, it's such a relief to people. They think, oh, it's not just me. Because you feel a bit bonkers bargaining with God that a loved one might come back. Because you know it can't happen. But it's just, it's just something within us. It's how we operate. But I think this relates to any trauma that we go through. And I think Elizabeth and Zechariah also went through this process. And you can imagine them thinking, trying for children, they can't have children. And there's this sense of denial, it will work, you know, it will be okay in the end. And then you can imagine this anger, this rage, this God, why? Why, God, where are you in this? Perhaps there was bargaining, and like, I will, I will be a priest for longer, and I don't, I don't know what went on. And I'm sure there was depression. Absolute just misery. Why, God, I so feel let down by you. And then they reach this place of acceptance. And I think understanding this helps us to understand why Zechariah had so much doubt. Because Zechariah, here's this angel saying, your wife will have a child. And Zechariah's head is going, I've been through all this stuff. This is what's going on in his head. I've been through all this stuff. And there is no way I'm going home to my wife, who's now in a place of acceptance. Although she's not happy, but she's in a place of acceptance. No way I'm going and starting all this again. That is what's going on in his head. And that makes so much more sense of where he is in that moment. Zechariah and Elizabeth had lost all hope, and hope is a feeling or an expectation that a particular thing would happen. The angel is essentially saying that this thing would happen, that in their heads is impossible. There's no hope. They don't consider this to be a possibility. Zechariah, <coughs> excuse me, seems far from God. He's shaken, he's overwhelmed with fear, he's disillusioned. And it's astonishing, really, the way he's fulfilling his priestly duties. But God is very distant. God is very far away. And I find that reassuring because the truth is that sometimes in my Christian experience, um, I, I'm, I've been in this place. And I'm sure some of you have been in this place. And perhaps you're in this place this morning. Or Tracy's his bottle of water. I don't know who opened it. Oh, it's screws. There we go. Can I go there? It may be that we're in this place today <clears throat> where Zechariah seems far from God. Zechariah doesn't believe God, and we thought about that. And finally, Zechariah and Elizabeth's lives are changed by this encounter with God. Zechariah doesn't believe, but it all comes to be. Zechariah can't speak as he comes out, and people can see he's had this encounter with God. And he goes home. And uh, a few months later, Elizabeth finds out she's pregnant. Incredible. And Elizabeth is saying that God has blessed her. It's astonishing, isn't it, when you think about the, the grief that she'd been through. And she's saying, God has been kind to me. My goodness. She's gone from this absolute place of, God, why do you hate me? Now, I'm putting words, I'm not saying she used those words, but that's almost what I read into this. God, why? Into this moment of, God, you've been so kind and you've blessed me. So that's Zechariah and the angel. I want to think about Mary uh, and the angel. Mary was engaged. She was full of hope. She lived in a time where uh, women couldn't work, women couldn't own stuff. Women were, were second-class property, essentially, in this culture, which, which is sad and is wrong, and that's a thought, thing, thought for another time. And almost there was this sense for, for young women 
uh, of they, their, their only real hope was to marry well. It's a bit like Pride and Prejudice, really, isn't it? When you got this, they, you know, the couple and they're waiting to marry off all their daughters because they got no other hope. And this is very like that. Mary is as, as, as engaged to Joseph. She's going to get married. It's going to be okay. She, she has security uh, in life. She meets this angel. <clears throat> and that will be surprising enough. But if you ever meet someone and they say, oh, you're really amazing. You're highly favoured. You're really special. What do you think? You think, oh, no, what do they want? What are they going to ask me to do? And uh, the angel talks about this baby. You will have a baby. He will be called Jesus, son of the most high. He will sit on the throne of David. And essentially what the angel is saying to uh, Mary is he will be the Messiah. He's the the saviour, the Messiah who was promised. You are going to give birth to the Messiah. And uh, Mary asks a very good question, which is how? Now, Mary uh, wouldn't have had gone to sex education. She wouldn't have seen books. And she might have been a little bit confused about the whole thing. But she knows enough to say... Doesn't there have to be a man involved in this somewhere? You know, how, how is this going to work? And I love the way that, that, that God responds very naturally to this very reasonable question. This isn't doubt. This is her just saying, well, I don't, I don't get it, God. And God says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Do you notice the language is future tense? Not the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's not you're lumbered with this, Mary. You have no choice. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Mary gives consent Mary gives consent. She's, no, this isn't inflicted on her. And in fact, she says, I am the Lord's servant. And the Greek language that the Bible was written in, the word there is slave. Slave. Such an emotive word in our culture, isn't it? Slave. Who would be a slave? No one would choose to be a slave. But Mary is saying to God, I will be your slave. I, you, you are Lord. And what Lord means is that you are the boss. I find Mary's obedience absolutely astonishing. I mean, who's going to believe her? Can you imagine her going home and saying, Dad, guess what? I'm pregnant. But don't worry, it was God. Can you imagine that conversation? Where the fight, you bet she went to find her mother first to tell her mum. Who would believe her? Now, she knew that Joseph wouldn't marry her. And then neither would anyone else in her culture. To have sex outside of marriage was absolutely forbidden. It was, it was a no, no, no. She knew that Joseph wouldn't marry her. And in fact, that's what happened. Joseph said, well, I'm not going to marry you. But then he gets his angelic visitation. Only one of the interesting things is he doesn't get an angel. He just gets a dream about an angel. And I find that quite significant that in this culture where men were important and women weren't, God gives this young peasant woman an angelic visitation but, but, but Joseph, who would have been perceived as the important one, just get, he just gets a dream. And I wonder if what God was just trying to bet, reinforce something there, perhaps, about equality. Rejection by family and friends would have followed, and that went all the way through to their road to Bethlehem. Why were they going to Bethlehem? Well, there was a census. Everyone from their, both their families, but it was Joseph's family, because he was the important one in that culture, everyone uh, had to go there. So isn't this astonishing? In Bethlehem, Because of the Roman census, everyone in Bethlehem uh, who was descended from King David was in Bethlehem together at that time for the birth of the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? Really clever. And they go there. This is where Joseph's family lives. This is where they're all from. And there's no room for them. Now, in our nativity plays, we have an innkeeper, don't we? Now, the Bible doesn't talk about an inn. In some of the Bible translations, it does. Uh, But that's the wrong translation. What the, The Greek word is just room. There was no room. 
Uh, and if we read in, don't we? Because in our culture, if you travel to another town, you stay in a hotel, don't you? But if you travel to another town where you've got family, where do you stay? With your family. So there was no room. Why was there no room? Well, there was no room because the family was saying, no, you're not coming in here. Mary, you were pregnant before you were married. We, don't, we reject you. There's no room. How did they end up giving birth where the animals were? Well, there's probably some well-meaning auntie or grandma or someone who said, no, you're not giving birth in the street. I can't bring you in here because I'll be for it. But come round the back and we'll find you a spot. There was no room for them. They were rejected. Everyone who turned on them. And the penalty for adultery was death. In the moment, she says, Dad, I'm pregnant. The community under Jewish law should have dragged her outside and stoned her to death. That's, that's horrific, isn't it? But in saying, yes, God, she's fully aware of all this. This is not a naive girl who wouldn't have understood this. This would have been really obvious. And that leaves me with the question, how obedient are we to God? Now, for various reasons that I hope are obvious, uh, God can't ask me to do what Mary did. But if he could, or if there was an equivalence that resulted in this, would I say yes? And I'm not 100% sure I would. And there's an honest admission. And yet she just so willingly says yes. She says yes. Mary praises God. She praises God. And there's the section that we, the next section we would have read in the chapter is the Magnificat, Mary's Song of Praise. And I find this astonishing because she said yes to God. But often when we say yes to God, it's a bit like, it's a bit like Jonah, isn't it? Saying, well, okay, God, if you're going to make me, if there's going to be a storm and I'm going to have to be thrown overboard and I'm going to end up at Nineveh anyway, I'll do it. But I don't like it very much. I'll, I'll do what you want, God, but I'm miserable about it. But Mary is the opposite. With all the stuff that's going on, you think she, would, she could have been a bit like that. Now, I'm sure there were days when she was like that and she did feel like that. But there were also days when she praised. And this song of praise about the privilege of God working in her and through her, I just find absolutely astonishing. So, thinking about Mary and Zechariah. Mary, uh, the peasant. Zechariah, the priest. Zechariah, who's shocked by the angel. Mary, who has a nice chat. It's almost the sort of chat where you, if she was British, she'd have said, do you want a cup of tea? Uh, do you know, it was like they're having this nice conversation. And uh, Zechariah, who's afraid. Mary, who seems quite calm. Zechariah, who doubts God. Mary, who's, who's confused and doesn't quite get it biologically, uh, but she obeys. Zechariah, who'd lost all hope. Mary, who has hope, despite the difficulties and the impossibility. Just pause just for a few seconds and think. In this moment today, are we more like Zechariah or Mary? What do you notice about this picture? Just sort of think about it for a moment. The painting is The Road to Bethlehem, also known as The Difficult Journey by Fritz von Uder. Oh, pressing your phone, so I don't know what time it is. I can't see that clock, but I'll just be really quick. That's fine. What do you notice about this picture? Well, the picture just sort of may have paused that now as well. Uh, what do you notice about this picture? It just, it's just really bleak, isn't it? 
came across this picture as I was Googling for pictures and the nativity. And I hate nativity art, I really do. Because you look at these pictures of the nativity and all of them are completely unreal. You know, you've got this stable scene with the animals and the hay and it looks like someone's gone round with a hoover and a duster and got it all nice and clean. And Mary's got all this stuff and she looks immaculate. You know, she's just given birth. But she's like, she's like the... Um, uh, Kate, isn't she? Duchess of, uh, what's it called? Cambridge. And, you know, she gave birth and she appeared on the steps of the hospital a day or so later and she was like, ding! And that's because she'd had all these beauticians and people working on her. But that's not real, is it? It's not reality. And I hate nativity art. And so I was working quite hard at finding something that was a bit more realistic. And, and I love this picture. And I look at it time and time again over Christmas. And you see Mary and Joseph on the road to Bethlehem. And you imagine them stumbling down the road. How did they get there? Well, again, our nativity place, they have a donkey, don't they? Don't, the donkey's not in the Bible. There may have been a donkey. That's fine. Uh, but probably they walked. There may have been a cart. We, we don't know how they got there. And you imagine this sense of misery. And as we look at this picture, the question I'm left with is, where is, where is the hope? Because this picture is miserable. Miserable. But in the darkness of this picture is shining the everlasting hope, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in this picture. In the misery, you might look at it and think, wouldn't it be good if God was in this? But he is. He is. He's present. He's there. God, Jesus, in Mary, in the bleakness, waiting to be birthed into this world. In the pandemic, waiting to bring light and hope and we might be looking around at our circumstances and saying God where are you God where's what's going on God I've lost all hope Jesus is waiting to be birthed into the everyday situation <coughs> sorry I've got a dry throat so as we come to finish then this is one of my worst nightmares. Uh, when I was in youth work, I had to go abseiling a few times, and I'm really afraid of heights. So if you ever need any help repairing roofs or anything, then I'm, I'm not your person. I'll look after the children while Tracy comes and does that. That's fine. And incidentally, Tracy does all our DIY at home, so it's not me being funny. Uh, it's just if there's DIY, I'll just get out of the way, and she, she comes out with a drill. and um, she's, In fact, she's just better to get out of the way. It's terrifying, but uh, it's also very efficient. And I look at this picture, and... Um, <coughs> And looking at this person who has to lean back, and I can't even look at it. And it's absolutely terrifying, because when you're abseiling, you have to lean. Just lean, and you don't let go. You can hold on to the rope, but you can let go, because the rope's got you, hasn't it? <clears throat> and the question I have is, do we have hope in God, despite our circumstances? Because when I have abseiled once or twice, and I would never do it by choice, I, don't, I, I, I just find it terrifying. And the thing that pushed me over the edge... I thought you'd enjoy that. The thing that pushed me over the edge was the instructor who said to me, this harness is around you, he said, and I've got the other end, and it's going through all this pulley system. He said, with this rope and this system, I could pick up a car. And I said, right, I'm off. <laughs> and over I went. It made me feel better. My circumstances weren't good. I didn't feel good. But I had this reassurance that he was there and he had got me. Zechariah had lost all hope, but Mary clung to God. Mary clung to God. Where is your hope this morning? 
especially if you're living with disappointment, if you feel like you're doomed to a life of misery, where is your hope? And the good news is that Zechariah found hope again, and it began with a God moment. And if that's you today, if you feel like Zechariah, may we cry out to God for a God moment, saying, God, God, you know how I feel. I'm going to pour out my heart to you and tell you how I'm feeling with the expectation that as I pour out all this angst and frustration that you will pour in your presence. And we're going to finish with um, Psalm 62. We're going to read a few verses from here. I wait quietly before God, for my victory comes from him. I have to read it from my Bible. I can't read it. <clears throat> Can you forward it for me when I read it on here? He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, while I will never be shaken. So many enemies against me, all of them trying to kill me. To them, I'm just a broken down wall or a tottering fence. They plan to topple me from my high position. They delight in telling lies about me. They praise me to my face, but curse me in their hearts. Let all that I am wait quietly before God. For my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will never be shaken. My victory and honour come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Oh my people, trust in God at all times. Let's just pause and pray as we think about this final sentence. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. Let's just take a moment just to pour out our hearts to God, just to tell him how we're feeling. So God, we come to you as we are. Some of us uh, can identify with Mary this morning. Some of us feel more like Zechariah. But we pour out our hearts to you now. We tell you how we're feeling and help us as we make more time to do that later. As we pour out our hearts to you and make space, God, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you fill us with your presence? Would you, the light of the world, inhabit us afresh and shine through us so that people might behold your glory? Amen. Thank you, Graham.